case you haven't learned that enough already this week. <laughs> I'm going to see what I can do. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me from, as I read from God's Word. Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2 from verse 1. So, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, this is the key verse I'm going to focus on, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every time confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just pray. As I begin, Heavenly Father, bless this your word to us. Bless us here at the end of first half of the semester, at the start of a break. Uh, bless us as we take a moment to sit and hear from your word what it has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. So this morning I was uh, speaking at chapel at my kids' school, the Wilberforce School, and um, I was, uh, I told the teacher who was organizing, I told him I was going to teach tonight to Princeton students on humility. He said, well, then I expect they need a lot of that um, teaching you on humility. So just so you know, that's what people think about you, right? <laughs> um, Princeton students must be proud. And it's funny because actually my classic line to any prospective student, we meet prospective students constantly. They reach out to us all the time. So we're always meeting with people. Must be very hard because they almost never get in. But anyway, leaving that aside, you know, we still like this is what I always say to prospectus. I'm not very eager for people to come to Princeton, both because I love Princeton and because I want to see Christian students come to Princeton. I want to dispel some of the uh, ideas people have, like Princeton has no financial aid, or um, you couldn't possibly survive as a Christian at Princeton, or other things like that. I think the classic line I say to Christians, Christian prospective students, is you should come to Princeton for your spiritual walk. Why? Because not that it needs to do this, but it will teach you humility, right? If you're the kind of student who can get into Princeton, then you are an overachiever. And so in Princeton, you will be normal. Right? That's what I say. But, I mean, which, which is right? So the teacher, well, before saying Princeton students need to learn humility, or like, have you already learned that? And I think the answer is, is probably both, right? It's probably both. Both, like, Princeton does puff you up, and it does throw you down. Um, often in a cycle, <laughs> sometimes uh, in the same moment. Um, and, uh, and so I want to speak, because this passage in Philippians, uh, I remember um, you know, reading through this my, my freshman year, I was reading through Scripture, and I had this um, intention to memorize the verse from each chapter that I read, and this was Philippians 2, verse 3. This really stuck with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And I want to say three things, right? Three, always three points to a good message. And first I want to talk about my ambition 
don't mean me, David Kennedy, but me, an individual, individual ambition. Second, about Christ's ambition. And third, about our ambition, our ambition meaning Christian, the Christian community. So first, my ambition, because this term, you know, it's there, do nothing from selfish ambition. One of the things I love about Princeton is people do have ambitions, right? People want to do stuff. They have motivation. Sometimes you don't really understand where it's coming from, but it's there, right? There's this, like, sometimes it's like a compulsion. But I, I love that when I came to Princeton. There is so much going on, and there are different kinds of ambitions as well. I mean, it's not just students who want to um, do well in school and become professors or uh, what have you. It's like artists and poets. I mean, I love that at Princeton I had multiple friends who went on to write books, who wrote poetry, wrote good poetry. Poetry even I could tell was good, <laughs> right? Um, people have ambitions. This is, a, I think, a, a good thing. God has made us to work and be productive. God created himself, created the world. He made us to be creative. He endowed us with the skill and the ability and the desire to do things. So, but what does it mean, selfish ambition? That's the first point I want to unpack. Like, the ambition that is just about me, right? What is that? How, you know, how do we unpack selfishness? It's interesting because... But we do live in a, a culture with a Christian heritage, Judeo-Christian heritage. So it's there, like, what's the informal motto of Princeton University? I know they changed it recently. Princeton in the nation's service and <laughs> in the service of humanity. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. I mean, I understand they want to get away from in the, the focus on nation states. But still, like, in the service of humanity. That is part of our Christian heritage. That's from right out of teaching like this from Jesus, right? We know current political events, maybe notwithstanding, we know that we are called to serve others. That's a belief that persists in our culture, however post-Christian it is. And so we say it. We are all about service. We're all about changing the world, impacting the world. We want to impact other people. Relatively few people are like nakedly, openly selfish in what they say. I did, I remember working reunions once with a guy, and he was just like, I'm like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, he's pre-, he said, I'm pre-med. I'm like, what kind of doctor do you want to be? He's like, well, I'm pretty sure I want to be, I forget which specialty it was, because they make seven figures, and I couldn't live on less than seven figures. Right? I mean, sometimes it comes out straight like that, you know. Sometimes it comes out straight, where you're just crassly self-interested. But most of the time, we try really, really hard. And, you know, people are pretty good at it, at um, caring about others. I, I found they, they, they do make that effort. So what is selfish? how do we discover selfishness? How do we come to understand it? If you want to, you want to come to understand selfishness, either your own or other people's. If you want to find out how selfish a person is, become their friend. No better yet, become their good friend. You want them to find out how selfish you are, date them, right? <laughs> get into a romantic relationship. Better yet, get married, right? If you want to see how selfish you are, have children. Have children. It's like it's. I mean, we, we we hide it, but it's deep. When here, when Paul gives this exhortation, do nothing from selfish ambition. This isn't one of those minor things. This isn't just one of those side throwaway sins that a few people are afflicted by. Right? It's like self-interest runs deep. Our economic, our understanding of economics presupposes that. Historians' analysis of history presupposes that that people are fundamentally self-interested. What a, what a, one experience I loved in my academic time at Princeton 
was in a class, a history class on early, uh, late, the world of late antiquity with Peter Brown, he's a professor who's retired now. He still reads his books, though, uh, some people. Um, and Peter Brown, he was up there lecturing. And it's, like, it's just such an automatic thing when you look at history. People are selfish, we know it. Everyone just does stuff for money and sex and power. That's it. And, um, and he was talking about martyrs, or the early Christian church. That's what he was talking about. Before Christians had political power in uh, the 4th and 5th centuries. He's talking about these early Christian martyrs, the skeleton martyrs, so on and so forth. Perpetua and Felicity. Many who died for the faith. And he, I remember him saying there in the lecture hall down in CS 101, he said, you cannot dismiss these people. So many, he was so frustrated because students would come up with this simplistic narrative where people are just selfish. And it's like, well, these people were dying for ideals for whatever reason, whatever the truth claims. He wasn't making truth claims about Christianity. But they believed it. And that is so unusual as to be hard to believe. Right? That someone wouldn't just be based selfish. It's so unusual in life and history that it's hard to believe that it's true. Right? So it's like when Paul, Paul gives us this exhortation to nothing from selfish ambition, he's, he's really saying to us, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Deny your nature. Deny, deny, how, how you, deny your, your natural impulses. It's certainly how it feels, because we are, we are a self-interested we're self-interested. We're self-interested, each of us individually. And it's a harsh reality when you come in to encounter with it. It's, it's harsh when you discover it in yourself. But it's harsh when you're in that relationship and you seem to get along so well. And then that moment, and that relationship could be friendship, it can be family, romantic, work relationship. And then that moment comes where all of a sudden your interests diverge. And then what can come out? And the kind of damage we can do to each other when our interests diverge. Sometimes even just a little bit. When you feel threatened. People are so unwilling to give an inch of themselves. So that's the first. Do nothing from selfish ambition. This is the reality that Paul is arguing against. And why is he, and how does he argue against this? So this is point two. And this is what is Christ's ambition. Because I want to redeem ambition. Tonight, I think ambition is a good thing if it's in the right direction, for the right purpose, with the right people. Right? Ambition that's just my glory, my fame, my money, is just poison. That selfish ambition is just poison. It infects our hearts. It separates us from God. It infects our relationships. We, But ambition can be redeemed. What did Christ do? So this is Paul's argument, the broader argument of Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And he just starts, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, any affection, any sympathy, he's playing, he's saying to us, like in view of who Christ is and what he has done, if there is any encouragement from that or affection and love, because what is it that Christ has done? This is this beautiful, powerful passage on who Jesus is, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. What has Jesus done? He has... Though he is God, though he is the least reason for humility of all of us, nonetheless, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus became a human being. Right? This truth that Jesus was willing to lower himself, how many times have you been willing, what have you been willing to sacrifice for another person? 
What have you been willing to sacrifice for some for a stranger? We sacrifice for people we love. What have you been willing to sacrifice for an enemy? Well, Jesus, when we were his enemies, took on human flesh and was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Here, it's like, so what, what is Jesus' ambition? His ambition, God's ambition, the triune God's ambition, was to accomplish our salvation. And how, through providing us this example of Christ dying for our sins, yes, to pay the price for our sins, but also to speak to us, to say to us what it means to humble ourselves, to give, to sacrifice, to lay down. And here's the crazy thing. Selfish as we are, deeply selfish as we are, we look at that and we find it beautiful. Jesus humbled himself. He was obedient to the Father. That obedience in relationship, Father to Son, is a beautiful thing. It's a moving thing. We look at it and we say, how can I be like that? Right? It's like this, what does this accomplish, Jesus' ambition? It purchases us. We, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, it buys us. Right? It's like Jesus, by being willing to pay the price for our sins, we, he owns us. Owns us not like master and slave. Owns us like the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Right? Owns us in the best possible sense. This giving, we see this mirrored in many of our relationships. I hope when you think about selfishness, I think, and humility, I hope you have many great examples in your life of people who humble. I certainly had it modeled for me by my parents and grandparents, by others, by friends, by people in the church who sacrificed for me. We see this. We are made in God's image. We are meant for something other than just seeking our own interests. We are meant to be ambitious, to have ambitions that aren't about me, but rather about me as God's child, about God and his glory, about Jesus as Lord and Savior. So Jesus, what was Jesus' ambition to save us? How? Through humbling himself. And through obedience. Humility and obedience. So third, my third point. Our ambition. What should our ambition be? Because the context of this is Paul is, wants them to be unified. So the last of the three verses at the end of chapter 1 that I didn't read right before this passage, he's encouraging them to be unified in the face of opposition. Right? To not be afraid of their opponents. So that he's speaking to the Christian community. He's calling them to unity in the face of difficulty, in the face of persecution. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, He's encouraging them to unity among themselves. And the key to unity is this, the humbling of themselves, right? The considering others more significant than yourselves. I remember a good friend of mine from high school, she asked me once, when we were in high school, she was like, um, she was arguing with her mother, who was a lay preacher in the Methodist church. Um, but she was arguing with her mother because um, um, she was like, she'd be, she was a new Christian, my friend. And uh, she was busy serving others. And her mother felt she was giving too much of herself. She said, you need to look out. It says in the Bible, you need to look out for yourself first. Right? <laughs> or take care of yourself first. And she's like, does it say that somewhere in the Bible? Does it say somewhere in the Bible you should think of others more than yourself? And I'm like, yes, yes, it does. Philippians 2, verse, verses 3 and 4. It says, count others more significant than yourselves, but not only to your own interests. So why is this the key? 
consider others more senior than yourself. This is a little frightening, actually, that kind of message. Right? It's like, what, what is that going to require me to sacrifice? In what way is that going to push on me if I have to consider others' interests more significant than my own? Is that going to make me a wallflower or a doormat? Well, none of those things. But it is the key to unlocking true unity. We cannot be unified if we're all about ourselves. If we're all just picking and choosing our lives, our community, our ambitions based on personal preference. If we are not at root, fundamentally, looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, this, these are my people. Their interests are my interests. Right? Where they go, I will go also. This pushes on us in all sorts of ways. I said this, I remember having this conversation not too long ago with a student. It was about this sort of particular type of church worship. And the student said to me, everyone I know only likes this particular type. And I'm like, you need to talk to some more people. <laughs> It's like, how can it be that everyone you know shares the exact same preference? When I know for sure the people who are walking by you, maybe you don't know them, but they're right in front of your face, represent a much greater diversity on this question than you just described. Do you get what I'm saying? Right? It's like we are so good about at self-selection. At self-selection. This can be, maybe you're past that initial stage of selfishness. I love this image of the community in PCF. So when I was a student, I had one of my classmates in PCF, he's from Malaysia, and he's a really strong, zealous believer. And he had a roommate who was Jewish, uh, sort of a reformed Jewish, um, little agnostic Jew, not particular, not heavily practicing. But, so his roommate came on the retreat, the PCF Mana winter retreat, with us multiple years. And this guy, Adam Rubin is his name, R-U-B-I-N. You can Google this. He did, he's also a stand-up comedian. He's a scientist and a stand-up comedian. All right? And he did this, uh, he has this comedy bit about the winter retreat. Because he's like, because he came just because it was like fun to ski, right? Mm -hmm. With friends. And then he put up with all the religious stuff. Like that, that was his plan going in. And, uh, and then he's like, but lo and behold, it's like he discovered these evangelical Christians were like, he like, he liked, like, what, what would they like? They, they played board games and they drank hot chocolate. Right? <laughs> and he likes playing board games and drinking hot chocolate, right? It's like, he was a community that wasn't like, drink and try to hook up or make crude jokes. Like, it was like a marvel to him to discover. And he came back uh, the next year and he's still talking about it years and years and years later. And it's like, there's an image there of a, of a turning away from self and a turning towards each other. We care about each other enough to talk to each other even when we're sober. Right? It's like the low standards of campus culture. <laughs> the low standards. It's a low bar, right? Selfish, self selfishness. But even within the Christian community, we can engage in that self-selection. This Paul is pushing against. He's pushing against. Who are we? If we have the mind of Christ, if we have been bought by his death on the cross, if we are obedient to, the, to, to our Father in heaven, as Jesus was, then we are one in Christ. And unity in Christ requires dying to self and considering the interests of others. And the others isn't just like, well, I found five people whose interests I'm considering. You know, I mean, that's like family formation. I consider the interests of uh, Christina, my wife, I met on the winter retreat, incidentally. <laughs> um, just saying. And uh, <laughs> my, my, my children, obviously I consider their interests. It is a bigger circle than that. We act 
we act like the the, the, uh, the teacher of the law when Jesus uh, says, "Love your neighbor." So he asked, you know, he asked Jesus, "What's the greatest commandment?" And Jesus asked him, and he says, "Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself." But then he's trying to define neighbor down, right? It's like, but who's my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, the point of which is everybody is your neighbor. Well, the point of Philippians 2 is not like choose 12 people as close to you as you can possibly find in this world and consider their interests as well. I love this in church. I mean, it really makes you uncomfortable some of the times because there's an aspect of considering others' interests which is, which is always pushing on you. Always pushing on you. Right? And it, truth be told, some of the times you're just like, ah, I'm tired of being pushed on by having to think about things through other people's perspectives. Can't I just, like, stop reading my Facebook feed and, um, like, binge watch Netflix? I mean, it's just like, I do feel that sometimes. But let me tell you that we are made for community, for unity beyond just our personal preference. It is good. It pays dividends. It is rewarding to be in unified Christian Organize, in an organized way to care for one another as the church of Jesus Christ. To consider one another. To bear with one another. How do we do this? How do we consider each other's interests? First, you need to know people. I mean, I say this many times up here. You've got to know people. Again, this is this low bar of modern society, right? We're so disconnected from each other. You've got to be in a relationship with people. If you find yourself like everyone I know and talk to, thinks exactly the way I think. Just say hi to the next person you meet. It's a discipline. Take it upon yourself. At a minimum in Christian community and outside, meet people and talk to them. It's hard, I know, some of the time, especially if you're introverted. Introverts can learn to grieve people. I, I tell them, my, my mother is an introvert and a, was a pastor's wife for 40 years and somehow managed to develop a vast network of close relationships with people. You're helped if you're an introvert, because that means you won't go on too long talking, right? <laughs> it helps you listen. So first, you've got to meet people and listen to them. Meet people and listen to them. Second, you've got to not run away. Not run away. It's like the first time that selfishness comes out, and your own or theirs, and you just you run from the relationship, the friendship, the acquaintance, the church, the job, whatever, Right? It's like that fight, that flight impulse. There are appropriate times to do those things. But that's not what I'm talking about tonight. You've got to fight that flight impulse. Uh, how do you do that? You do that through reconciling problems, through working through them, through talking through them. Right? You can't know other people's interests. It's so helpful to me, like, being in small group Bible studies and praying with people. You make this a habit, and that way you're not just talking chit-chat with them, you're learning their prayer requests. And that is what gets, just as a practical matter, praying with people gets you past that point of not even knowing what their interests are. Right? It gets you to like, oh, that's how they're struggling. Or, oh, that's how they think about this. I really do not think about it that way. And that gets you to having that conversation where you work that out. And maybe you're wrong or they're wrong. Maybe you need to change your behavior or not, who knows? you will never know unless you do that work. Do it just as a baseline. It's muscle memory, right? It's like the first time you do it, it's like it's a, 
you start out as a teenager, I couldn't possibly have a serious conversation ever. I mean, I don't know how many years that went by. I think I was a sophomore in college before I felt confident to walk up to people and expect to have any kind of meaningful conversation. But you know, once once the dam breaks, you can all of that can disappear. You can learn to be in deep relationship with people, to be a builder, a builder of God's church. And last, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. This is what Paul exhorts us to in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because how, how do we do it and why do we do it? I mean, I can tell you it's, it's freedom, it's liberty to live a life of service to others as opposed to selfishness. And, you know, Princeton would even agree, right? In the service of the nation and of humanity. Princeton would agree. How do you get there? How do you not grow weary? How do you persevere? Have the mind of Christ. I mean, this, the Christian life is really actually very simple. It's really very simple. You come before the cross and you consider what Christ has done. And you respond in kind. Right? You come back in prayer before the cross. You consider what Christ has done. You see the empty tomb. And you go forth in service. Go forth in gratitude. Go forth in patience. You go forth caring about people. Able to love people, even when they don't reciprocate. Even when their selfishness hurts you. You learn to repent when your selfishness hurts them. Right? You learn to, to be steadfast even when there's, there are things that you can't reconcile this side of the brain. How do we do it? We do it with Christ. We do it as a church, as God's people called together in unity. We do it in obedience to the will of our Father in heaven. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us dead in sin. You have not, not left us to our own devices to work out our own misery and unhappiness, our own rebellion against you and separation from you, our own judgment. Uh, but Heavenly Father, no. You sent your Son, Jesus, to humble himself, to take on human likeness, and to pay the price for our sins on the cross. And so, Heavenly Father, we are we come before you in humility. All our deeds, all our achievements are nothing compared to your glory and your power, compared to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are nothing. And we count them as nothing, Heavenly Father. But at the same time, Heavenly Father, we know you have called us to zeal, to righteous zeal, to godly ambition. Heavenly Father, may our words of service, of impact on others, of selfless, selflessness, may they be borne out in our actions. May that selflessness be written on our hearts by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.